This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcasts where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Mackenzie Alderson, Winona Horbank, and Lori Kautz-Frost. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com. 
which is a wonderful site where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest and wake up more refreshed the next day, then consider going to patreon.com and donating even a dollar a month. There's cool perks for donating $5 a month, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Cannon. So, it being July 4th, uh, I always think of Mark Twain when I think of American literature. And tonight I'm going to be reading a lovely little short story by his called A Dog's Tale, which has, I think, one of the best opening sentences of any story in American literature. It opens with, My father was a St. Bernard, my mother was a collie, but I am a Presbyterian. I thought that was an incredible first sentence, having never read this story, and um, while it is very well written and entertaining, it's definitely a good story to fall asleep to, and I'll try to make it as boring as possible. You're going to hear this story um, told once, and then it's going to repeat itself. So you can fall asleep and stay asleep. So tonight, A Dog's Tale by Mark Twain. And now it's time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter One My father was a Saint Bernard. My mother was a collie. But I am a Presbyterian. This is what my mother told me. I do not know these nice distinctions myself. To me they are only fine large words, meaning nothing. My mother had a fondness for such. She liked to say them and see other dogs look surprised and envious, as wondering how she got so much education. But indeed, it was not a real education. It was only show. She got the words by listening in the dining room and drawing room when there was company and by going with the children to Sunday school and listening there. And whenever she heard a large word, she said it over to herself many times and so was able to keep it until there was a dogmatic gathering in the neighborhood. Then she would get it all and surprise and distress them all from pocket pup to mastiff which rewarded her for all her trouble. If there was a stranger, he was nearly sure to be suspicious, and when he got his breath again, he would ask her what it meant. 
and she always told him. He was never expecting this, but thought he would catch her. So when she told him, he was the one that looked ashamed, whereas he had thought it was going to be she. The others were always waiting for this, and glad of it, and proud of her, for they knew what was going to happen, because they had had experience. When she told the meaning of a big word, they were all so taken up with admiration that it never occurred to any dog to doubt if it was the right one. And that was natural, because for one thing, she answered up so promptly that it seemed like a dictionary speaking. And for another thing, where could they find out whether it was right or not? For she was the only cultivated dog there was. By and by, when I was older, she brought home the word unintellectual one time and worked it pretty hard all week at different gatherings, making much unhappiness and despondency. And it was at this time that I noticed that during that week she was asked for the meaning at eight different assemblages and flashed out a fresh definition every time which showed me that she had more presence of mind than culture though I said nothing, of course. She had one word which she always kept on hand and ready like a life preserver a kind of emergency word to strap on when she was likely to get washed overboard in a sudden way. That was the word synonymous. When she happened to fetch out a long word which had had its day weeks before and its prepared meetings gone to her dump pile, if there was a stranger there, of course it knocked him groggy for a couple of minutes, then he would come too, and by that time, She would be away, downwind on another tack, and not expecting anything. So when he'd hail back and ask her to cash in, I, the only dog on the inside of her game, could see her canvas flicker a moment, but only just a moment. Then it would belly out, taut and full, and she would say, as calm as a summer's day, it's synonymous with super irrigation or some godless long reptile of a word like that and go placidly about and skim away on the next tack perfectly comfortable you know and leave the stranger looking profane and embarrassed and the initiated slatting the floor with their tails in unison and their faces transfigured with a holy joy and it was the same with phrases She would drag home a whole phrase if it had a grand sound and play it six nights and two matinees and explain it in a new way every time, which she had to, for all she cared for was the phrase. She wasn't interested in what it meant and knew those dogs hadn't wit enough to catch her anyway. Yes, she was a daisy. She got so that she wasn't afraid of anything. She had such confidence in the ignorance of those creatures. She even brought anecdotes that she had heard the family and the dinner guests laugh and shout over. And as a rule, she got the nub of one chestnut hitched onto another chestnut, where, of course, it didn't fit and hadn't any point 
And when she delivered the note, she fell over and rolled on the floor and laughed and barked in the most insane way. All I could see, and she was wondering to herself why it didn't seem as funny as it did when she first heard it. But no harm was done. The others rolled and barked too, privately ashamed of themselves for not seeing the point and never suspecting that the fault was not with them and there wasn't any to see. You can see by these things that she was of a rather vain and frivolous character. Still, she had virtues, and enough to make up, I think. She had a kind heart and gentle ways, never harbored resentments for injuries done her, but put them easily out of her mind and forgot them. And she taught her children in her kindly way. And from her, we learned also to be brave and prompt in time of danger, and not to run away, but face the peril that threatened friend or stranger, and help him the best we could without stopping to think what cost might be it to us. And she taught us not by words only, but by example. And that is the best way and the surest and the most lasting. Why the brave things she did, the splendid things. She was just a soldier and so modest about it. Well, you couldn't help admiring her and you couldn't help imitating her. Not even a King Charles Spaniel could remain entirely despicable in her society. So as you see, there was more to her than her education. Chapter 2 When I was well grown, at last, I was sold and taken away, and I never saw her again. She was broken-hearted, and so was I. Then we cried, but she comforted me as well as she could, and said we were sent into this world for a wise and good purpose, and must do our duties without repining. Take our life as we might find it, live it for the best good of others, and never mind about the results. They were not our affair. She said men who did like this would have a noble and beautiful reward by and by in another world, and although we animals would not go there, to do well and right without reward would give to our brief lives a worthiness and dignity, which in itself would be a reward. She had gathered these things from time to time when she had gone to Sunday school with the children and had laid them up in her memory more carefully than she had done with those other words and phrases, and she had studied them deeply, for her good and ours. One may see by this that she had a wise and thoughtful head, for all there was so much lightness and vanity in it. So we said our farewells, and looked our last upon each other through our tears, and the last thing she said, keeping it for the last to make me remember it the better, I think, was, in memory of me, when there is a time of danger to another, do not think of yourself. Think of your mother, and do as she would do. Do you think I could forget that? 
Chapter 3 It was such a charming home, my new one. A fine, great house with pictures and delicate decorations and rich furniture and no gloom anywhere. But all the wilderness of dainty colors lit up with flooding sunshine and the spacious grounds around it and the great garden. Oh, Greensward and noble trees and flowers, no end. And I was the same as a member of the family, and they loved me and petted me and did not give me a new name, but called me by my old one that was dear to me because my mother had given it to me, Eileen Mavernine. She got it out of a song, and the Greys knew that song and said it was a beautiful name. Mrs. Gray was 30, and so sweet and so lovely you cannot imagine it. And Sadie was 10, and just like her mother, just a darling, slender little copy of her, with auburn tails down her back and short frocks. And the baby was a year old, and plump and dimpled and fond of me, and never could get enough of hauling on my tail and hugging me and laughing out its innocent happiness. And Mr. Gray was 38, and tall and slender and handsome, a little bald in front, alert, quick in his movements, businesslike, prompt, decided, unsentimental, and with that kind of trim, chiseled face that just seems to glint and sparkle with frosty intellectuality. He was a renowned scientist. I do not know what the word means but my mother would know how to use it and get effects. She would know how to depress a rat terrier with it and make a laugh dog look sorry he came. But that is not the best one. The best one was laboratory. My mother could organize a trust on that one that would skin the tax dollars off a whole herd. The laboratory was not a book or a picture or a place to wash your hands in, as the college president's dog said. No, that is the laboratory. The laboratory is quite different, and is filled with jars and bottles and electrics and wires and strange machines. And every week, other scientists come there and sat in the place and used the machines and discussed and made what they called experiments and discoveries and often I came too and stood around and listened and tried to learn for the sake of my mother and in loving memory of her although it was a pain to me as realizing what she was losing out of her life and I gaining nothing at all for try as I might I was never able to make anything out of it at all other times I lay on the floor in the mistress's workroom and slept, she gently using me for a footstool, knowing it pleased me, for it was a caress. Other times I spent an hour in the nursery and got well tousled and made happy. Other times I watched by the crib there when the baby was asleep and the nurse was out for a few minutes on the baby's affairs, 
Other times I romped and raced through the grounds and the garden with Sadie till we were tired out, then slumbered on the grass in the shade of a tree while she read her book. Other times I went visiting among the neighbor dogs, where there were some most pleasant ones not far away, and one very handsome and courteous and graceful one, a curly-haired Irish setter by the name of Robin Adair, who was a Presbyterian like me and belonged to the Scotch minister. The servants in our house were all kind to me and were fond of me, and so, as you see, mine was a pleasant life. There could not be a happier dog that I was, nor a gratefuler one. I will say this for myself, for it is only the truth. I tried in all ways to do well and right, and honor my mother's memory and her teachings, and earn the happiness that had come to me as best I could. By and by came my little puppy, and then my cup was full. My happiness was perfect. It was the dearest little waddling thing, and so smooth and soft and velvety, and had such cunning little awkward paws, and such affectionate eyes, and such a sweet and innocent face, and it made me so proud to see how the children and their mother adored it and fondled it, and exclaimed over every wonderful little thing it did. It did seem to me that life was just too lovely, too. Then came winter. One day I was standing a watch in the nursery. That is to say, I was asleep on the bed. The baby was asleep in the crib, which was alongside the bed, on the side next to the fireplace. It was the kind of crib that has a lofty tent over it made of gauzy stuff that you can see through. The nurse was out, and we two sleepers were alone. A spark from the wood fire was shot out, and it lit on the slope of the tent. I suppose a quiet interval followed, then a scream from the baby awoke me, and there was that tent flaming out toward the ceiling. Before I could think, I sprang to the floor in my fright, and in a second was halfway to the door. But in the next half second, my mother's farewell was sounding in my ears, and I was back on the bed again. I reached my head through the flames and dragged the baby out by the waistband and tugged it along, and we fell to the floor together in a cloud of smoke. I snatched a new hole and dragged the little creature along and out of the door and around the bend of the hall and was still tugging away, all excited and happy and proud when the master's voice shouted, Be gone, you cursed beast. And I jumped to save myself. But he was furiously quick and chased me up, striking furiously at me with his cane, I dodging this way and that in terror, and at last a strong blow fell upon my left foreleg, which made me shriek and fall for a moment, helpless. The cane went up for another blow, but never descended. For the nurse's voice rang wildly out, the nursery's on fire. 
and the master rushed away in that direction, and my other bones were saved. The pain was cruel, but no matter. I must not lose any time. He might come back at any moment, so I limped on three legs to the other end of the hall, where there was a dark little stairway leading up into a garret where old boxes and such things were kept, as I had heard say, and where people seldom went. I managed to climb up there, then I searched my way through the dark among the piles of things and hid in the secretest place I could find. It was foolish to be afraid there, yet still I was, so afraid that I held in and hardly even whimpered, though it would have been such a comfort to whimper, because that eases the pain, you know, but I could lick my leg, and that did some good. For half an hour, there was a commotion downstairs, and shoutings, and rushing footsteps, and then there was quiet again, quiet for some minutes, and that was grateful to my spirit, for then my fears began to go down, and fears are worse than pains, oh, much worse. Then came a sound that froze me. They were calling me, calling me by my name, hunting for me. It was muffled by distance, but that could not take the terror out of it, Then it was the most dreadful sound to me that I had ever heard. It went all about, everywhere, down there, along the hall, through all the rooms, in both stories, and in the basement and the cellar, then outside, and farther and farther away, then back, and all about the house again, and I thought it would never, never stop. But at last it did, hours and hours after the vague twilight of the garret had long ago been blotted out by black darkness. Then in that blessed stillness, my terrors fell little by little away, and I was at peace and slept. It was a good rest I had, but I woke before the twilight had come again. I was feeling fairly comfortable, and I could think out a plan now. I made a very good one, which was to creep down all the way down the back stairs and hide behind the cellar door and slip out and escape when the ice man came at dawn while he was inside filling the refrigerator. Then I would hide all day and start on my journey when night came. My journey to, well, anywhere where they would not know me and betray me to the master. I was feeling almost cheerful now. Then suddenly I thought, why, what would life be without my puppy? That was despair. There was no plan for me. I saw it. I must stay where I was, stay and wait and take what might come. It was not my affair. That was what life is. My mother had said it. Then, well, then the calling began again. All my sorrows came back. I said to myself, the master will never forgive. I did not know what I had done to make him so bitter 
been so unforgiving. Yet I judged it was something a dog could not understand, but which was clear to a man and dreadful. They called and called, days and nights, it seemed to me, so long that the hunger and thirst near drove me mad, and I recognized that I was getting very weak. When you are this way, you sleep a great deal, and I did. Once I woke in an awful fright. It seemed to me that the calling was right there in the garret. And so it was. It was Sadie's voice, and she was crying. My name was falling from her lips, all broken. Poor thing. And I could not believe my ears for the joy of it when I heard her say, Come back to us. Oh, come back to us and forgive. It is all so sad without our I broke in with such a grateful little yell and the next moment Sadie was plunging and stumbling through the darkness and the lumber and shouting for the family to hear she's found she's found the days that followed well they were wonderful the mother and Sadie and the servants, why, they just seemed to worship me. They couldn't seem to make me a bed that was fine enough, and as for food, they couldn't be satisfied with anything but game and delicacies that were out of season. And every day the friends and neighbors flocked in to hear about my heroism. That was the name they called it by, and it means agriculture. I remember my mother pulling it on a kennel once and explaining it in that way, but didn't say what agriculture was, except that it was synonymous with intramural incandescence. And a dozen times a day, Mrs. Gray and Sadie would tell the tale to newcomers and say, I risked my life to save the babies, and both of us had burns to prove it. And then the company would pass me around and pet me and exclaim about me and you could see the pride in the eyes of Sadie and her mother and when the people wanted to know what made me limp they looked ashamed and changed the subject and sometimes when people hunted them this way and that way with questions about it they looked to me as if they were going to cry and this was not all the glory no the master's friends came, a whole twenty of the most distinguished people, and had me in the laboratory, and discussed me as if I was a kind of discovery, and some of them said it was wonderful in a dumb beast, the finest exhibition of instinct they could call to mind, but the master said with vehemence, it's far above instinct, it's reason, and many a man privileged to be saved and go with you and me to a better world by right of its possession has less of it than this poor silly quadruped that's foreordained to perish. And then he laughed and said, Why, look at me. I'm a sarcasm. Bless you with all my grand intelligence. The only thing I inferred was that the dog had gone mad and was destroying the child. Whereas, but for the beast's intelligence, 
its reason, I tell you, the child would have perished. They disputed and disputed, and I was the very center of subject of it all, and I wished my mother could know that this grand honor had come to me. It would have made her proud. Chapter One My father was a St. Bernard. My mother was a colleague but I am a Presbyterian. This is what my mother told me. I do not know these nice distinctions myself. To me, they are only fine, large words, meaning nothing. My mother had a fondness for such. She liked to say them and see other dogs look surprised and envious, as wondering how she got so much education. But indeed, It was not a real education. It was only show. She got the words by listening in the dining room and drawing room when there was company and by going with the children to Sunday school and listening there. And whenever she heard a large word, she said it over to herself many times and so was able to keep it until there was a dogmatic gathering in the neighborhood. Then she would get it all and surprise and distress them all from pocket pup to mastiff, which rewarded her for all her trouble. If there was a stranger, he was nearly sure to be suspicious, and when he got his breath again, he would ask her what it meant, and she always told him. He was never expecting this, but thought he would catch her, so when she told him, he was the one that looked ashamed whereas he had thought it was going to be a she. The others were always waiting for this, and glad of it, and proud of her, for they knew what was going to happen, because they had had experience. When she told the meaning of a big word, they were all so taken up with admiration that it never occurred to any dog to doubt if it was the right one. And that was natural, because for one thing, She answered up so promptly that it seemed like a dictionary speaking. And for another thing, where could they find out whether it was right or not? For she was the only cultivated dog there was. By and by, when I was older, she brought home the word unintellectual one time and worked it pretty hard all week at different gatherings, making much unhappiness and despondency. And it was at this time that I noticed that during that week she was asked for the meaning at eight different assemblages and flashed out a fresh definition every time which showed me that she had more presence of mind than culture, though I said nothing, of course. She had one word which she always kept on hand and ready, like a life preserver a kind of emergency word to strap on when she was likely to get washed overboard in a sudden way. That was the word synonymous. When she happened to fetch out a long word, which had had its day weeks before and its prepared meetings gone to her dump pile, if there was a stranger there, 
Of course, it knocked him groggy for a couple of minutes. Then he would come too. And by that time, she would be away, downwind on another tack, and not expecting anything. So when he'd hail back and ask her to cash in, I, the only dog on the inside of her game, could see her canvas flicker a moment, but only just a moment. Then it would belly out, trot and full, and she would say, as calm as a summer's day. It's synonymous with super irrigation, or some godless long reptile of a word like that, and go placidly about and skim away on the next tack, perfectly comfortable, you know, and leave the stranger looking profane and embarrassed, and the initiated slatting the floor with their tails in unison, and their faces transfigured with a holy joy. And it was the same with phrases. She would drag home a whole phrase if it had a grand sound and play it six nights and two matinees and explain it in a new way every time, which she had to, for all she cared for was the phrase. She wasn't interested in what it meant and knew those dogs hadn't wit enough to catch her anyway. Yes, she was a daisy. She got so that she wasn't afraid of anything. She had such confidence in the ignorance of those creatures. She even brought anecdotes that she had heard the family and the dinner guests laugh and shout over. And as a rule, she got the nub of one chestnut hitched onto another chestnut, where, of course, it didn't fit and hadn't any point. And when she delivered the nub, she fell over and rolled on the floor and laughed and barked in the most insane way. All I could see, and she was wondering to herself why it didn't seem as funny as it did when she first heard it. But no harm was done. The others rolled and barked too, privately ashamed of themselves for not seeing the point and never suspecting that the fault was not with them and there wasn't any to see. You can see by these things that she was of a rather vain and frivolous character. Still, she had virtues, and enough to make up, I think. She had a kind heart and gentle ways, never harbored resentments for injuries done her, but put them easily out of her mind and forgot them. And she taught her children in her kindly way, and from her, we learned also to be brave and prompt in time of danger, and not to run away, but face the peril that threatened friend or stranger, and help him the best we could without stopping to think what cost might be it to us. And she taught us not by words only, but by example, and that is the best way and the surest and the most lasting. Why the brave things she did the splendid things. She was just a soldier and so modest about it. Well, you couldn't help admiring her and you couldn't help imitating her. Not even a King Charles Spaniel could remain entirely despicable in her society. So as you see, there was more to her than her education. Chapter 2
When I was well grown, at last, I was sold and taken away, and I never saw her again. She was broken hearted, and so was I, and we cried, but she comforted me as well as she could, and said we were sent into this world for a wise and good purpose, and must do our duties without repining. Take our life as we might find it, live it for the best good of others, and never mind about the results. They were not our affair. She said men who did like this would have a noble and beautiful reward by and by in another world, and although we animals would not go there, to do well and right without reward would give to our brief lives a worthiness and dignity, which in itself would be a reward. She had gathered these things from time to time when she had gone to Sunday school with the children and had laid them up in her memory more carefully than she had done with those other words and phrases, and she had studied them deeply, for her good and ours. One may see by this that she had a wise and thoughtful head, for all there was so much lightness and vanity in it. So we said our farewells, and looked our last upon each other through our tears, and the last thing she said, keeping it for the last to make me remember it the better, I think, was, in memory of me, when there is a time of danger to another, do not think of yourself. Think of your mother and do as she would do. Do you think I could forget that? No. Chapter 3 It was such a charming home, my new one. A fine, great house with pictures and delicate decorations and rich furniture and no gloom anywhere. But all the wilderness of dainty colors lit up with flooding sunshine and the spacious grounds around it and the great garden. Oh, greensward, and noble trees and flowers, no end. And I was the same as a member of the family, and they loved me and petted me and did not give me a new name, but called me by my old one that was dear to me because my mother had given it to me, Eileen Mavernine. She got it out of a song, and the Greys knew that song and said it was a beautiful name. Mrs. Gray was thirty, and so sweet and so lovely you cannot imagine it. And Sadie was ten, and just like her mother, just a darling, slender little copy of her, with auburn tails down her back and short frocks. And the baby was a year old, and plump and dimpled, and fond of me, and never could get enough of hauling on my tail and hugging me and laughing out its innocent happiness. And Mr. Gray was thirty-eight, and tall and slender and handsome, a little bald in front, alert, quick in his movements, business-like, prompt, decided, unsentimental, and with that kind of trim, chiseled face that just seems to glint and sparkle with frosty intellectuality. 
He was a renowned scientist. I do not know what the word means, but my mother would know how to use it and get effects. She would know how to depress a rat terrier with it and make a laugh dog look sorry he came. But that is not the best one. The best one was laboratory. My mother could organize a trust on that one that would skin the tax dollars off a whole herd. The laboratory was not a book or a picture or a place to wash your hands in, as the college president's dog said. No, that is the laboratory. The laboratory is quite different and is filled with jars and bottles and electrics and wires and strange machines. And every week, other scientists come there and sat in the place and used the machines and discussed and made what they called experiments and discoveries. And often I came too and stood around and listened and tried to learn for the sake of my mother and in loving memory of her. Although it was a pain to me as realizing what she was losing out of her life and I gaining nothing at all. For try as I might, I was never able to make anything out of it at all. Other times I lay on the floor in the mistress's workroom and slept, she gently using me for a footstool, knowing it pleased me, for it was a caress. Other times I spent an hour in the nursery and got well tousled and made happy. Other times I watched by the crib there when the baby was asleep and the nurse was out for a few minutes on the baby's affairs. Other times I romped and raced through the grounds and the garden with Sadie till we were tired out, then slumbered on the grass in the shade of a tree while she read her book. Other times I went visiting among the neighbor dogs where there were some most pleasant ones not far away and one very handsome and courteous and graceful one, a curly-haired Irish setter by the name of Robin Adair, who was a Presbyterian like me and belonged to the Scotch minister. The servants in our house were all kind to me and were fond of me, and so, as you see, mine was a pleasant life. There could not be a happier dog that I was, nor a gratefuler one. I will say this for myself, for it is only the truth. I tried in all ways to do well and right, and honor my mother's memory and her teachings, and earn the happiness that had come to me as best I could. By and by came my little puppy, and then my cup was full. My happiness was perfect. It was the dearest little waddling thing and so smooth and soft and velvety and had such cunning little awkward paws and such affectionate eyes and such a sweet and innocent face and it made me so proud to see how the children and their mother adored it and fondled it and exclaimed over every wonderful little thing it did. It did seem to me that life was just too lovely too. Then came winter. 
One day I was standing a watch in the nursery. That is to say, I was asleep on the bed. The baby was asleep in the crib, which was alongside the bed, on the side next to the fireplace. It was the kind of crib that has a lofty tent over it made of gauzy stuff that you can see through. The nurse was out, and we two sleepers were alone. A spark from the wood fire was shot out, and it lit on the slope of the tent. I suppose a quiet interval followed, then a scream from the baby awoke me, and there was that tent flaming out toward the ceiling. Before I could think, I sprang to the floor in my fright, and in a second was halfway to the door. But in the next half second, my mother's farewell was sounding in my ears, and I was back on the bed again. I reached my head through the flames and dragged the baby out by the waistband and tugged it along, and we fell to the floor together in a cloud of smoke. I snatched a new hole and dragged the little creature along and out of the door and around the bend of the hall and was still tugging away, all excited and happy and proud, when the master's voice shouted, Be gone, you cursed beast and I jumped to save myself. But he was furiously quick and chased me up, striking furiously at me with his cane, I dodging this way and that in terror, and at last a strong blow fell upon my left foreleg, which made me shriek and fall for a moment, helpless. The cane went up for another blow, but never descended for the nurse's voice rang wildly out, the nursery's on fire, and the master rushed away in that direction, and my other bones were saved. The pain was cruel, but no matter, I must not lose any time. He might come back at any moment, so I limped on three legs to the other end of the hall, where there was a dark little stairway leading up into a garret, where old boxes and such things were kept, as I had heard say, and where people seldom went. I managed to climb up there. Then I searched my way through the dark among the piles of things and hid in the secretest place I could find. It was foolish to be afraid there, yet still I was, so afraid that I held in and hardly even whimpered though it would have been such a comfort to whimper, because that eases the pain, you know. But I could lick my leg, and that did some good. For half an hour, there was a commotion downstairs, and shoutings, and rushing footsteps, and then there was quiet again. Quiet for some minutes, and that was grateful to my spirit, for then my fears began to go down, and fears are worse than pains. Oh, much worse. Then came a sound that froze me. They were calling me. Calling me by my name. Hunting for me. It was muffled by distance. But that could not take the terror out of it. Then it was the most dreadful sound to me that I had ever heard. It went all about. Everywhere. Down there. Along the hall. Through all the rooms in both stories, and in the basement and the cellar, 
then outside, and farther and farther away, then back, and all about the house again, and I thought it would never, never stop. But at last it did, hours and hours after the vague twilight of the garret had long ago been blotted out by black darkness. Then in that blessed stillness, my terrors fell little by little away, and I was at peace and slept. It was a good rest I had, but I woke before the twilight had come again. I was feeling fairly comfortable, and I could think out a plan now. I made a very good one, which was to creep down all the way down the back stairs and hide behind the cellar door and slip out and escape when the ice man came at dawn while he was inside filling the refrigerator. Then I would hide all day and start on my journey when night came. My journey to, well, anywhere where they would not know me and betray me to the master. I was feeling almost cheerful now. Then suddenly I thought, why, what would life be without my puppy? That was despair. There was no plan for me. I saw it. I must stay where I was, stay and wait and take what might come. It was not my affair. That was what life is. My mother had said it. Then, well, then the calling began again. All my sorrows came back. I said to myself, the master will never forget. I did not know what I had done to make him so bitter and so unforgiving. Yet I judged it was something a dog could not understand, but which was clear to a man and dreadful. They called and called, days and nights, it seemed to me. So long that the hunger and thirst near drove me mad, and I recognized that I was getting very weak. When you are this way, you sleep a great deal, and I did. Once I woke in an awful fright. It seemed to me that the calling was right there in the garret. And so it was. It was Sadie's voice, and she was crying. My name was falling from her lips all broken. Poor thing. And I cannot believe my ears for the joy of it when I heard her say, Come back to us. Oh, come back to us and forgive. It is all so sad without our... I broke in with such a grateful little yell. And the next moment, Sadie was plunging and stumbling through the darkness and the lumber and shouting for the family to hear. She's found. She's found. The days that followed, well, they were wonderful. The mother and Sadie and the servants, why, they just seemed to worship me. They couldn't seem to make me a bed that was fine enough and as for food, they couldn't be satisfied with anything but game and delicacies that were out of season. And every day the friends and neighbors flocked in to hear about my heroism. That was the name they called it by. And it means 
agriculture. I remember my mother pulling it on a kennel once and explaining it in that way, but didn't say what agriculture was, except that it was synonymous with intramural incandescence. And a dozen times a day, Mrs. Gray and Sadie would tell the tale to newcomers and say, I risked my life to save the babies, and both of us had burns to prove it. And then the company would pass me around and pet me and exclaim about me, and you could see the pride in the eyes of Sadie and her mother, and when the people wanted to know what made me limp, they looked ashamed and changed the subject. And sometimes when people hunted them this way and that way with questions about it, it looked to me as if they were going to cry. And this was not all the glory. No. The master's friends came. A whole twenty of the most distinguished people and had me in the laboratory and discussed me as if I was a kind of discovery. And some of them said it was wonderful in a dumb beast. The finest exhibition of instincts they could call to mind. But the master said, with vehemence, it's far above instinct, it's reason. And many a man, privileged to be safe and go with you and me to a better world by right of its possession, has less of it than this poor silly quadruped that's foreordained to perish. And then he laughed and said, Why, look at me, I'm a sarcasm, bless you with all my grand intelligence, the only thing I inferred was that the dog had gone mad and was destroying the child, whereas but for the beast's intelligence, its reason, I tell you, the child would have perished. They disputed and disputed, and I was the very center of subject of it all, and I wished my mother could know that this grand honor had come to me, it would have made her proud. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.